I'm Kelly Davis. You're listening to No Way Out, an oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man. This is episode three, Leaving the Nest. last episode, we met several of the musicians involved with the earliest jamming of Sunburn Hand of the Man. Handshake with like two fingers pointing at each other. And it lasted for a long time and then, yeah, that, that was like the start. That's how I met a lot of people. I mean, my, the way that I met Rob was through that, through that record store. Grabbed him and hugged him and said, that's the point of this performance. You did it. You saved me. You rescued me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, me and, me and Rich Pontius. Yeah, we want to start a band as my cousin Rich, Chad Cooper, James Coleman. Mark was like, I want to play with you so bad. We also heard about the Charlestown loft space. Did anyone talk about how it used to be a coffin factory? It was shaped like a ship, triangular, like a slice of cake almost. It was between a junkyard and a railroad track and the river. Uh, it's creaky. Creaky. Like that was the head, that was the headquarters, that was the office, the lab, the studio, the listening room. That was the blasting zone. It was a very psychedelic space. And we closed out by trying to wrap our brains around how this informal group of people jamming together started to take the shape of a band. I remember John saying I was religious, and I was like. Yeah, well, like, it's like, this is my break. We play all the time, and, you know, I, I don't remember there being any structure. We started maybe once, after a while, we started inviting people, like, to come over on Friday, we're going to play music then. And there seemed to be a m- music most nights. Yeah, music most, most of the time. In today's episode, we're going to continue that story and learn about how Sunburn Hand of the Man, as an actual band, came into existence. But first, let me bring in my special guest, Allison Hussey. Hey, Allison. Hey, Kelly. How are you? Doing all right. Hanging in there. Awesome. And we ready to dive back into the Sunburn story? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, so you heard the recap from the last episode. Where do you think we should start with today's episode? You know, obviously, there were a lot of different people involved in this group over the years, kind of in different context and for different stretches of time um but all of this like it ultimately had to start somewhere um i guess where is the most precise point that might be the beginning of sunburn hand of the man you know that's tough but uh we heard how the band jammed namelessly for over a year so let me think about that one um why don't you give me a couple more prompts and I'll figure it out. What else, what else would you like to know about? Um, yeah, so we talked about how there was kind of this loft space that was sort of like a central location for people to like for them to kind of jam and play music together. But then at what point did they start playing outside of the loft and kind of doing stuff that was more geared toward whether whether or not they thought of it this way but something that was more like a performance oh yeah awesome that's great okay what else are you wondering about right now yeah i'd really like to know like where what kind of spaces they were playing in and Uh, if there were kind of any spots that they felt were 
almost like their own little incubators that were not spaces that like belonged to anybody in the band. Okay. Okay. This is great. I can hear it all coming together. Um, give, give me one more question to use in this first segment. Yeah. I'm also really curious as to how playing out and kind of playing with the intention of like being in front of people for it, like how that started to affect what they were doing musically. Okay, this is perfect. I think I can put it all together and might even be able to answer your first question. Precise point when Sunburn Hand of the Man started. Hmm. For that, I'm going to use the first time they played a show using the Sunburn Hand of the Man moniker. But that's not the first time the band played outside the loft. Here's Rob Thomas talking about a pre-Sunburn gig. The first performance we played at the um, ICA in Boston, the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. Well, there was that one up in Triple R that was... Oh, no, they had, yeah, we played before we were called Sunburn. We did, yeah, that's right. We played at Records, RRR Records there in Lowell. It's a long-standing noise uh, specialty shop. It's been there since 1984, I think, um, run by Ron Lassard, who performs under the name Emil Bolio. We went out and played there under the name Save Yourself. That was the first technical show that went in the initial Sunburn lineup later that year. And here's what Conrad Capistran remembers of that show. But then they started doing this bigger group and they invited me to play the show at Triple R Records at something called like Saturday afternoon matinees. And we played, um, and it was all members of people who would be in Sunburn later. And a guy named Don Harney, who's a really good photographer and close friends with John and Rob. Rob called it Save Yourself. Um, Ron Lassard asked, what do you call me? That's what he said. He was uh, listening to a lot of uh, the British band Help Yourself. So that was a reference point. Yeah. Oh, Rob also did some some disturbing, some stuff that makes like Neil Hamburger seem like straightforward comedy. Like what he was doing was like, it was dark. He did like a spoken word but before and it's like, what the fuck? And then we played. <laughs> now, sometime after that first show, the band took on the sunburn hand of the man name. And they were invited to play at an interesting venue. And then the first show under that name was at the ICA. We played for about two and a half hours, maybe. Mm. Three, yeah, three hours. Two days. It was two separate days. Two separate days? Yeah, at the two ICA. days in a row at the ICA. Oh, I forgot, yeah. Uh, two set, two like long sessions. Right. Yeah, we were like, and, and we were in an exhibition in, a, in itself, you know, yeah. just in a room. Yeah. There was video going out to other rooms. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. To clarify what they're talking about, the very first gig that Sunburn Hand of the Man was invited to play was to be part of an exhibition at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. I asked them how they got that invitation. I can't remember how we got that offer. Maybe, maybe, maybe through James the Theremin player, perhaps. Somehow that seems right. Something like that. Yeah, I think it was his. Uh, his someone approached him about it. And it was his idea. And it, was, it was fun. I still have the tapes upstairs. Mm-hmm. One, there's two tapes. Mm-hmm. I've never listened to them. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was going to check it out. And that was a, 
We played at a smaller, like a bar club, was our second show. Yeah, in Somerville. Yeah. Called the Kirkland Cafe. That's right. That was a, that was a large group of us. Mm-hmm. Like Phil Franklin had just returned from somewhere. He was doing a stint with some yeah. other, another band, like Carolina Rainbow or... Maybe off with Fax Fax Head. So he was there at the first... Show, yeah, yeah. first proper show first, in front of a real audience. Yeah, right? first proper show with a, with a poster. Yeah, people went kind of nuts. So someone ripped the door off the men's room. Really? Yeah, the Kirkland. There was a strange woman who danced, danced with us. woman named Kate was going berserk on stage with us. Oh, yeah. She really, really unusually long hair, and she was... Yeah, there's a very uh, there's a VHS tape somewhere. Yeah, has a great maybe video, in this a great room. video of that set. Uh, that set, yeah, that was the first gig we played as a you know like a you know like a handbills on a couple of different posters going around town. A lot of people were there. Yeah, and the first we headlined our first show. Yeah, yeah, it was a big deal for us. Yeah, and you remember Phil Franklin from the previous episode. He was one of the people that set up and built the Charlestown Loft. At this point in our story, he has moved back to Boston from a stint in San Francisco. I asked Phil what he remembered about that night at the Kirkland Cafe. I just went to watch him, you know. I was just there as an audience member. But I think they were like, you should sit in, you should play with us. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll I'll pick up something and play. I mean, they had everything they needed. But I just picked up this tambourine and was like, oh, <laughs> shake a tambourine. Phil sounds a bit dismissive about just shaking a tambourine. But I think that story tells us something about Sunburn. The band was playing their very first club show, and they just invited this new guy to join them on stage. They seemingly recognized Phil as a kindred spirit, and he, in his words, just shook a tambourine. But here we are, 25 years later, Phil lives in Australia, but just earlier this year, he did a mini tour with a band during a visit to the U.S. That just speaks to the enduring nature of the relationships in this band. But back to our story, Sunburn Hand of the Man now exists as a named entity playing shows out in the world. That's as precise as I think I can get. And we also wanted to think about what kind of an impact playing out of the loft and new spaces had on the band. Before I can answer this, I want to remind us that Sunburn is a fully improvised freeform band. The music that they play is the result of specific individuals performing on that specific day in that specific place. So yes, every time they've ever played anywhere, it's had an impact on the band. But I imagine those earliest shows perhaps had an outsized impact on how the band functioned and evolved. Here's one example. We've heard about their first couple of gigs. I asked them if there are any other memorable performances or locations that they played during those early years. Well, I think the next show was at Jocks, which was a Jocks Cabaret, which was in the back bay in Boston, which had been around forever and was kind of a drag... Trans-centric bar, you know. Oh, it's definitely drag. Yeah, when it was, when it was, was that's. But they had, uh, they booked a lot of bands in there, and, and definitely had a very subcultural vibe at the time. It was really cool. Oh, yeah, that was great. Great place, Jocks. Jocks Cabaret in the yeah. Bay Village. Mm-hmm. Like it's a. I don't know if it's still there. But yeah, I don't know. I don't think Jocks is still around, but it was a cool place for sure. That's pretty good. Yeah, that was a good show. Yeah, yeah that's where John introduced some. 
real heavy performance aspect to it. Yeah, shirtless. The the shirtless uh, yeah. dancing. Masked. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty cool. Because I told my uncles at the time, we're you know, gay couple, they've been together forever, and like, you're playing at Jacques? <laughs> what kind of band is this? <laughs> so you should come. Yeah. It's like, that place is crazy. How'd you get a show at Jacques? Yeah. It's like, you come and find out. <laughs> yeah, fuck around and find out. Let's yeah. go. Come on down. Yeah. That made them pretty happy. I was they're pretty proud that mm. I wasn't a bonehead. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Now there's an example where the location and the context provoked what Rob referred to as heavy performance aspect, and by that I take to mean like performance art. And this is something that's been present with the band ever since. If you've ever seen them, you probably know what I'm talking about. Now, we're also thinking about if there are any venues with a band played during these early years that functioned as a secondary incubator space outside the Charlestown Loft. Um, there's one venue that stands out from this time period, and it's called the Burren. Um, there's a heavy Irish trad pub where... Um, you know, outside of Ireland, that was like at the time that was the place to go yeah. to listen to Irish trad yeah. seven nights a week. The world's best trad. And uh, yeah, so the, the guy Desi who ran the place liked our vibe and uh, asked us if we could do every Wednesday night in the back. And I'm like, are you are you out of your mind? <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, I paid. It wasn't paid three hundred bucks. Yeah, they paid us fucking three hundred. Yeah, it was three hundred bucks. You can have every Wednesday night. You can do what you want. And I said, you know, you've seen us play. You do you know, like, do you, you know, you know that we don't play songs. And it's like, yeah, it's fine, fuck it. It'll be grand. It'll be grand. It'll be mighty. It'll be grand. It'll be fine. So we started doing every every Wednesday night yeah. in the back room. And then to do that, we're like, maybe we should learn a couple of songs because yeah. You know, it's a lot, a lot of time to fill. We right. start at nine and end at last call, which would be around midnight, one a.m. So you got to fill four hours, and you can't just fill four hours with like howling and. Uh, yeah. So we start playing some, playing some songs. Sunburn's residency at the Burren went on for some time, and it provided the band with a weekly standing gig, steady income, and that extra chaotic aspect of random spectators and listeners wandering into their performances. And I think that part is a key difference between jamming at the loft. The loft was this hard to find spot for people already in the band's orbit. While the burn shows were free in the back room of a venue that typically hosted top tier traditional Irish music. So anyone just wandering into these shows was likely in for a surprise. But this is another instance of a new location impacting what the band was doing and how they were functioning. It sounds like they learned some covers like Dylan's new pony and uh, his cover of cocaine blues, but also Phil Franklin started opening some of these shows as Franklin's mint, where he was joined by other sunburn players backing him up on what he referred to as pop songs. You know, I love writing songs and writing lyrics and putting together these songs um, I, I know John and Rob and all those guys do also, you know, I mean, I've tried to, you know, attempt to bring songs to sunburn like that to do. Sometimes it's worked. Other times it's, it doesn't really work 
well, I don't know if it works or not, but sometimes it's just not as fun. You know, sunburn is more, it should just be loose. If it naturally, if we fall into a song or, you know, do some a cover song or something, that would be fine. But to be like, hey, let's practice this song and get it down is not something sunburn would do but franklin's mint we could do you know morning dew and 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 play it and be like okay let's we'll do it live you know and franklin's mint i guess exists for that reason in a way in my mind I included that last part about Franklin's Mint partly because I think it explains something about how Sunburns functioned over the years. Everybody involved in the band are also highly active artists in their own right, and Sunburn is just part of their creative output. And it's not this like zero something where one you know one thing takes priority over the other. It's that they meet different creative needs in different ways, and it's totally cool for that to happen. Okay, so Allison, we went into that segment with a lot of questions, and I think I answered everything. Do you want to follow up about anything we just heard? Yeah, so one place that came up as pretty important was the Burren. Was this where Julian Cope kind of first got tuned in? Yeah, you know, in the first episode, we heard Ron Schneiderman talking about mailing records back and forth to Julian Cope. Yeah, I think that's where uh, the band got on Cope's radar. Mm -hmm. But then it sounds like in talking to the band members that he showed up at one of their shows at the Burren mm -hmm. and, and was actually there. Uh, there. There was some debate among the members that I talked to about whether Cope was really there or whether it was an out-of-body experience. Or, <laughs> But I'm going to go with Cope showed up and uh -huh. saw them play a show there mm -hmm. because if you go and read his big long write-up, there's this like really detailed description of their set mm -hmm. and naming the people and what they're doing. Uh -huh. It's really, it's pretty fascinating. And we've linked to it in the show notes if you're interested. But yeah, Cope's write-up was Sunburn's first major press coverage. I think it was published in December of 2001. And it was the first domino in that chain of events around the time the headdress was released that resulted in the world suddenly opening up for the band. Okay. And so, yeah. But so I think the burn is important in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Okay. And was there anything else you're wondering about? Yeah. So I think it was John talking about how he felt like he wasn't, I think the word he used like a, was he wasn't a bonehead. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's kind of a funny word, but that also seemed to be something that he took at least like somewhat sort of seriously. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious as to like, what was that for him? What did it mean for him to like not be a bonehead and like how sunburn was his like outlet for yeah. not being a bonehead? <laughs> yeah. This is part of what I found most fascinating about this whole story. And we can really dig in on about this question in a later episode because there's a lot there. But to briefly answer your question right now, John grew up in a public housing project in Boston that was for military veterans. I believe his father had served during Vietnam, and it sounds like John had a rough childhood and adolescence. And you know how the world works. You can 
you, you put a kid through the grinder and the system beats them up, things can get really messy. But John, he took this different path that headed him towards Rob and college and sunburn. One of the things that stands out to me in that segment is you recall in the last episode, John talking about having a falling out with his brother, and then he moved in with his uncles. That's these uncles that he's talking about. And so I think there's a lot here. I want to acknowledge your question and say, this is something that we can really fully explore once we've gotten through like the band's whole chronological-ish story. Yeah. Is that is that cool? Okay, cool. Okay, I'm, I'm really glad you asked about that because it's the stuff that I'm most excited about. But um, let's, let's shift back to the story. What should we hear about next? So yeah. by this point, we've heard a lot about who's been involved with the band. And, you know, it seemed like they'd been pretty busy. Mm-hmm. But what is there of an album at this point? Is that even like on their radar of things they, they want to do right now? Yes, we were right around the time of Sunburn's first album, Mind of a Brother. So I can cover that. Well, uh, what else? Where where else should we go next? Well, I guess the question is, where did they go next? Because like, how how did they kind of start to break out of you know the geographic area that they were in? Um, you know, did they hit the road first and kind of like build up? word of mouth through whatever network was there at the time or like did they really did they go on tour supporting like an album yeah yeah those are some great questions and i can cover all of that here in this next segment Places in time. Right now, we are generally hearing about a three to four year span of time between 1998 and 2001. During this time, Sunburn was playing regionally, going as far out as New York City. In particular, they started playing shows with the No Neck Blues Band. Now, nowadays, you'll often hear Sunburn and No Neck referred to in the same breath. Some people call them things like sister bands. They were close. And No Neck played an important role in all the things that we're considering in this segment. Mind of a Brother was Sunburn's first album. It was originally released in an edition of 99 CDRs on a label run by Kristen Anderson. This was 1998, and the band wouldn't release another album until 2000. Mind of a Brother was reissued on vinyl in 2015 by Feeding Tube, and that release had extensive liner notes written by Rob Thomas. In his notes, Rob writes, Side 2, Love Letter to Complicated Dreams, was recorded on April 19th, 1998, as an excerpt from our performance at a free afternoon concert we held at 7 Sherman Street, along with the Nonak Blues Band and Egypt is the Magic Number. The impetus for this particular concert was to provide a space for the annual performance Nonak held on Orthodox Easter, which for reasons I can't recall was unable to be held in New York City that year. Rob then describes the weekend's proceedings and details of No Neck's rooftop set. Then he writes, 
Once everybody was safely sequestered back inside the loft, sunburned, set up in front of a packed house of about 75. The days of cell phone and internet ubiquity were still in the future, and I had spent much of the afternoon answering the landline, telling audience members how to get to our clandestine location. Just moments before our set began, the telephone attached to the wall next to me rang, and I answered it with my bass strapped on and plugged in, and the whole group ready to play. It was Malcolm Mooney, the original vocalist for Can Calling. He wanted me to give our mutual friend Frank Vandenelsen the message that he was sorry, but he wouldn't be able to attend the party. I assured him that I would let Frank know and hung up the phone, and we began playing the music to start side two of this LP. So that's the background of Sunburn's first LP, Mind of a Brother. Okay, here's Dave Bohill. You'll remember him from our first episode. He was the younger musician that had just started playing with Sunburn when they performed at the Stone Force show on the Amherst Commons. This is how he was first introduced to the band. When I first heard Mind of a Brother, and when I heard that shit, I was, I was over the moon. I heard that shit, I was like, this is next level. I, I, I kept playing it back, and I kept thinking, like, who, who in the world would choose to make those music decisions? And every time I heard heard it back, I was like, these guys are nuts. And then when I first heard one of those maniacs was Rob Thomas, I was like, okay, well, he's a cool guy. I'm kind of a cool guy, and we just got to know each other from around town. I asked him how he went from listening to a CD to playing in the band and he told a familiar story like because i think he worked at a record shop called mars up the street from a coffee shop i worked at called 1369 you know he must have come in and we just like got to talking or something like that and then he was like oh yeah got good records up here and I, i was pushing the buttons at that at the coffee shop playing like steve reich and like stuff that was popular at the time like whatever was cool and he and he and i had uh you know he would he would call me out for being like yo what is this or i would go into his record shop and be like hey what the fuck is this and then we got to talking and then it was off to the races you know and i love how these stories mirror each other in our last episode Conrad was the record store clerk, turning the young Rob Thomas onto music, and now here we have Rob as the clerk, turning Dave onto music. That friendship continued to grow, and Dave was eventually invited to jam with the band. But first, Sunburn ventured out beyond New England for their very first tour. The No Neck Blues Band was opening for John Fahey on a nationwide tour, and Sunburn was invited to join as a second opener. They started off, it was cross-country and back and our original idea was we were going to meet them in uh arizona that was alabama or something something fucking really ridiculous something was stupid yeah was absolutely inane texas texas yeah, we're <laughs> yeah. driving from boston driving. to texas yeah to, to meet them yeah and we took this uh modified van this guy critter who it's i really yeah, it's a winnebago it's a winnebago we built a house basically on top of it. We put everything we had in that fucking thing. And we made it as far as Maryland. We made it to a, Was that it? a toll booth. It's past the Delaware Bridge. And then we got towed somewhere. 
towed back to me. And then we uh, they couldn't figure they couldn't fix it. Like it's, the thing was, uh, I don't know, they couldn't fix it. But yeah. they're like, you got to take it back to Massachusetts. And they're like, how the hell are we gonna do that? And then uh, they said, well, you go down here and you rent a rent a rent a U-Haul, and you put a tow bar on the back, and then you tow the thing back behind you know like you just drag it back basically so like well how the hell are we all supposed to fit in the cab of the u-haul is only three seats so everybody sat in the fucking broke down winnebago yeah half of us sat in the broke down winnebago being on the tow bar and then dark three guys are up front in the in the u-haul we contemplated like three guys in the back of the u-haul but we tried that out and it was just like pitch black get me out of here yeah yeah yeah. so, Back when everybody in the band chain smoked. Yeah, everybody chain smoked. So we towed the towed the the Winnebago back to Boston. Got And then uh, I remember going through, uh, going over the GW Bridge and went right when you hit the Bronx and you go underneath on the the Cross Bronx Expressway. Yeah. And dude, this is pre phone. No one had a phone. And I'm like, damn, these guys are these guys are hauling ass. There's some weird sounds coming from like the tow bar thing. I hope they slow down. Why aren't they slowing down? And then we go start to go, and then the, the road's like you know it's like a it's like a paved dirt road with ruts, hardcore ruts, and then we started hitting some mad bumps in this thing. And I could I could have sworn we were coming off that tow bar. Yeah. And we're at three. I, I was in the truck. I was in the back with Orleans and somebody else and all three of us let out this like like you know like uh you know like shrieking scream <laughs> ah! yeah and the thing hit this bump and it didn't come off and then we we're like oh my god and that's when I, I was like i had enough i'm done with this tour and we went back and we attempted to to no we drove all the way to we pittsburgh drove all the way to, yeah we, we drove all the way to pittsburgh in a rented cargo van, we just threw a futon in the back, and there were like six <laughs> guys chain smoking the whole way. I think I had a, I had my one of my first nervous breakdowns. Yeah. I was like, "Just let me out." I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I'm out. Let them out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, middle of nowhere. Yeah, no phone, nothing. We drove a little further. We got into Ohio right before we finally slept for the first time in 20 hours. We tried to at like 10 a.m. into a state park. We all lied down, and I heard a sound. It sounded like um, the music of Zanakis, 360-degree metallic electric strumming and humming and screeching. And we were like, what the fuck is going on? And then shit started falling on all our faces. And we're like, what the fuck? And it was uh, the cicadas came out for the first time in 17 years. Someone was like, what the fuck is going on? And some guys are like, oh, yeah, every 17 years these fuckers come out. Just then as we lied down there. Then we did the whole rest of the fucking tour. We met No Neck in Tucson. Drove there, opened up for them. I mean, you can imagine the payouts. <laughs> for the band opening for No Neck, opening for Fahey. And uh, yeah, we went, we played, and uh, we, we went up to Oakland. We played at Eli's Blues Bar, I think is the place was called. But this is all Sans Maloney. He, you know, yeah, yeah, he I bailed. Cashed out. I uh, understandable. It. Yeah. We went through it. And uh, we made it all the way back. We set up with, with No Neck and played acoustically out in the Badlands in the middle of nowhere in uh, South Dakota, I guess. And that, that, there was some great stuff that happened, but it was grueling. 
And this is where our story could have ended. Rob could have decided it wasn't worth it. John could have decided he wasn't going to play with him again. Here's how Dave Bohill remembers the scene when he first started jamming with Sunburn Hand of the Man. Like when I came in, but I talked to Rob at the time and he was like, this is cool, but we don't know what we're doing. We got this guy that's like super talented, but he just tends bar all the time. We can't, if he was available, <laughs> this, this is John Maloney I'm talking about. He was like, well, we got to get this guy, John. Maloney was just like burnt out and just didn't want to fucking do it anymore. And then finally he like, I think he was just like, Rob, Rob reached out to him and was like, bro, come on, come back. And then he came back and he was just like, oh, it's a good time. And we all had a good time. <laughs> That's my memory of it. Okay, Allison, so there's the story of their first album and the band's first tour. I also embedded in there some of the impact of their relationship with the No Neck Blues Band. And I squeezed in one more band member introduction. So that, that kind of gives you an idea of where the, they went out for their first tour. Does okay. that make sense, Alice? Yeah, so are there any other band members that we still need to meet at this point? Yeah, I think there's... a. There, well, there's a lot of band members for us to meet. Yeah. Should we meet them all now? Uh, I think we can try to meet as, as many as we can. Yeah. Okay. It's not going to be a straight line. Sunburn's been picking up band members pretty constantly since the very beginning. But I want to go ahead and introduce the rest of the people that I recorded for this podcast. I think that'll make telling the rest of the story easier. And so we'll introduce Taylor, Michael, and Shannon. first person for us to meet is Taylor Richardson. My uh, entry into the band was, I guess, a little different than most people because I wasn't like a native mass person. Like I, I grew up in Atlanta and then uh, I moved to Massachusetts when I was like 18 to go to art school. Um, I was like always into, you know, weird music and noise music. And I would always go to sunburn shows and, and like I'd I, uh, when I was in college and then I, uh, yeah, I just started hanging out with Rob and, and John yeah. and Rob turned me on. I, I mean, to, you know, the best records in the world. I mean, every time I would go over to the loft, the sunburn loft, he would just put something on like, like the homosexuals or like something like that, that I, you know, just blew my mind. And so that, that was definitely like a formative thing for me. And here's another story that mirrors others that we've heard. So many of these initial friendships in the band were built on somebody, usually a little older, being cool and sharing their love and knowledge about music. But that's not how Taylor joined the band. To hear the rest of his story, we need to introduce one more venue 
that was important for Sunburn at this time. In Boston, we Boston after the barn we had like PA's Lounge. PA's Lounge, which was this really rundown bar in uh, Somerville, Massachusetts. Yeah, we became the de facto. We kind of hold in court PA's Lounge for a while. We'd set up gigs instead of at the loft space. We'd use PA's Lounge for a lot of stuff, like Michael Chapman. We set up. We'd all, they'd let us play there all the time. We had a couple of us ended up working the door there on occasion, or that that was just like a room with a tiny six inch stage. <laughs> You know, hardly any PA, well, like a like a square bar on the other side filled with uh, like heavy accent, Boston accent characters. They supposedly had their own beer, but it was, everybody found out it was just Miller High Life from the keg. They called it PA's Brew. Like Star Wars Cantina vibes, you know. Deep, deep, deep yeah, drinking yeah, locals. Yeah, deep drinking locals, uh, you know, neck braces, like... <laughs> Sherlock Holmes hats, like you, you name it, man. Every trench coat dudes, sports freaks, yeah, old, old, yeah, old retired guys, hat on backwards, like tank top dudes, muscle heads, alcoholics unanimous, yeah, alcohol. <laughs> so it, it was just a really like damaged local place, and that's where Taylor, as a college student, was going because he really wanted to see Sunburn Hand of the Man play live this damaged venue. When I hear these guys use the term damaged, I don't think that they mean it pejoratively. It's like that litany of bar denizens that John rattled off. It sounds like the way families remember their weird and beloved uncles. You know, the outsiders and trickster type people in their lives that help people see beyond the surface of things. And uh, I will acknowledge that maybe I'm just projecting a bit here because that's how I see sunburn, but still, that's that's what I hear. But back to Taylor. I asked him how he went from being in the audience to being in the band. Uh, they were playing a show again at PAs, and John like signaled to me to come in and start playing with them because, I mean, I guess I had made some artwork for them before, I think, like some silkscreen stuff. So I, I jammed with them a little, and... Now, at some later point, John called Taylor and invited him to come over to the loft. They were going to score a film, and Taylor was invited to play. So I went over to the loft, and uh, I was 22 years old. You know, they were all, like, a little bit older than me in their 30s. And uh, and I was just like, wow, this is really cool. And then at the end of the night, John's like, you're welcome to join the band. And I was like, are you fucking serious? Like, Really? I mean, I, I've never been so excited in my life. And I was like, this is fucking insane. This is like a dream come true. You know, I I'd played music my entire life. Like, you know, I, I played classical guitar when I was like five and, you know, play, started playing drums when I was nine. I've always been like a musician. But like to play with like a group of people that like I actually identified with and like, you know, like people I really looked up to. It was like the, it was it was huge. I think that's a really powerful memory and something that speaks to what this band's been doing for all these years. The next person for us to meet is Michael Kay. When I recorded this conversation with Michael, he had just moved to the Northampton area, in part to be near the other Sunburn players as a way to help him get out of the post-COVID headspace. Now, like many of these guys, Michael's story started by saying, I knew Mark Orleans. To which I laughed and told him how so many of these stories started that way. Yeah, Mark, Mark ties a lot together. Michael went on to say that he first saw Sunburn play during their show on the Amherst Commons that we heard about in our first episode. 
A little while later, he went to a show at the Charlestown Loft. And then when I, the first time I showed up at the Loft after that, everybody thought I was Chad's friend because I did know Chad from actually from high school. So when I got to the Loft, everybody thought I was there and knew Chad, but I just was, I knew about the show and I just showed up super early <laughs> and uh, just hung out. Matt, Matt Valentine and Eric Elder were there and I forget... What was that show? It was a big show at the Loft. Uh, no, I think No Neck came up to play. It was probably the first time I saw No Neck play. It was the second time I saw Sunburn play and kind of understood it better. I definitely didn't get it so much, even though it was really amazing on the common. I was just, I don't know what. And when he trailed off like that, I was really curious what that was all about. And so I, I wondered if he could recall how he felt when he was watching the band play that time like seething on the edge of the performance wanting to be in it and doing it but they were doing it <laughs> and a couple of months later michael had a chance to play as an opener for a show with sunburn so i performed with a friend of mine some electronic show before sunburn played and i think uh corsano flaherty and maybe greg kelly performed in between then sunburn performed and i was just like writhing and seething like on the edge, just like wanting to be part of it. And uh, Corsano was sitting there playing the congas on the edge, and uh, he like tagged me in, he like nodded me in. And that uh, they stayed for, what, seven years. And now he's back, and I believe he's active with the band. So, you know, more echoes, more familiar stories. The last person we'll meet in this segment is Shannon Ketch. He's a musician who lived in Boston for a time before moving out to Western Massachusetts. His journey into the band mirrors so many of the stories that we've already heard. He already knew Mark Orleans, and then... Uh, uh, there was a friend of mine, Jeff Breeze, he's passed, but he gave me a copy of uh, Rare Wood, and I was like, whoa, holy shit, this, this is really... Like, I just had really not heard anything like it. You know, really nothing like it. I mean, deeply like uh, human, not a dark isn't really, but like deep experience that was in there that I was like, well, okay, I really identify or, or I, I feel this situation. That's, that's part of this group. So, and then the, I think the next time I saw them was the Free Folk Festival. And I crashed the Free Folk Festival. That's the first time I played. Now, if that wasn't clear, during the band set at the Free Folk Festival in 2003, Shannon jumped on stage and just joined in. But that's not really how this band functions. It's free-formed, not a free-for-all. And so Shannon wasn't actually invited to join the band until around 2009. By that time, John Maloney had moved out to Western Massachusetts, and he invited Shannon to join in during a collaborative set the band was playing with Herb Diamante. And it just went from there.
All right, Allison, there's three more band members. Each of their stories is unique, but they also share interesting similarities, I think. Did that all make sense? Uh, yeah, I think so. It's a lot um, of people, I realize, yes. It's a lot of people, and I am excited to hear more about like what happens when this shifting group of people like really spend some time out on the road together because, yeah. you know... I'm sure we've both been on like long, uncomfortable car trips that are nowhere near the same thing as <laughs> being on tour in a van broke as hell for yeah. weeks at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so uh, is that where we're going next? Well, we're still in this 98 to 2001 zone. And other than that one tour with No Neck and Fahey, the band didn't actually go out on a full-fledged tour during this time period. What was like the hesitation or not? Which, well, what, t- what took him so long? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of I asked questions about this and I got some answers. The band was still winding up during this period. And I, I think that took a pretty long time. Okay. But I think more than anything, the band at that time and, and maybe maybe present all the way up to now, there's a constant push and pull between... This is a thing that we do in the privacy of our own spaces with each other. And then this is a thing that we do out in the world for other people to experience. And those are not mutually exclusive things, but they are different. And I think during these early years, that was still a dynamic that was being balanced out. That's that's my take on things. It may not be accurate, but that's that's what I think. Okay. And so, you know, I, I was really curious about like what flipped that switch, what caused it all change, and and you know, you asked this question in the last episode. How did they go from just kind of hanging out and playing music together into? Like deciding to be a band that puts out records. And I wasn't exactly sure how to be able to answer it at that point in time. And so I think I think we have an answer for it now. I think that there's tension between the whole like jamming in the loft space and then a band that's playing out. I don't think that there's a clean decision that was made. But here's what I think happened. It it started right here. I started Manhand, I think, in 1999 or 2000 when we were doing our residency at the bar in Irish Pub in Davis Square, Somerville. We play the back room. Manhand is the band's label. Most of their output is handmade CDRs released in limited runs. So the output of these releases and the creative interplay between John and Rob formed this rhythm that carried the band forward, which makes sense considering these guys are typically the band's rhythm section. Or maybe that's just the sense I'm making of it. <laughs> um, I, I, I kind of tended to want to labor over releasing stuff and, and make things sort of perfect. And and John rightfully uh, took some stuff and, and pumped it out before uh, our, you know, I had made rough sketches of what I, I thought maybe our first release should be a double album. And it would it would involve recordings that ended up being our first two CDRs. Our first two CDR releases were sketches that I had made of uh, a proposed double LP. And uh, the first was Jaybird and the second was Wild Animal. 
And I thought the best of those two things could be maybe a double, an audacious double LP release. But we didn't have any funding. We didn't have any money to do anything like that. There wasn't interest, but John just was like, we'll put these out as CDRs. And initially, and immediately we got a response, you know. David Keenan heard that stuff and responded really enthusiastically. And that opened a lot of doors. And then Headdress was something that John and I sat and really plotted out together. Basically, the two of us edited that and, and sequenced it and mixed it together. And... Uh, but I think John's perpetual drive and then I'm my uh, my aesthetic musings or something combined <laughs> created something powerful that is uh, powerful enough to last 25 years or whatever, you know, has a certain magnetic aspect to it that has brought all these good friends together and kept them there. Now, now this whole section started with you saying you're curious about what happens when this whole group of people go out on the road. Yeah. And I said that they didn't go out on the road for a while. But here, here's a quick clip from John Maloney and Rob Thomas talking about touring. Next time that I went on tour was probably the, the 2003 West Coast up to Alaska thing. And then and then it kind of, then it snowballed from, it hasn't stopped. Yeah, yeah. Since, true, yeah. yeah it, hasn't, that's, it hasn't stopped since that 2003. So yeah, it was like a four four year gap. Okay, so the band now has like, I guess what could be considered an official album. Um, and you know, we talked in the first episode about uh, Ron meeting John Maloney at a coffee shop, um, and that there was a purchase of some CDRs, and that like these CDRs kind of got distributed through the like network of heads that included like Ed Hardy and Julian Cope. Um, so, you know, once those CDs of sunburn recordings kind of made their way into hands of people who were a little bit further outside of this community they had built for themselves, like what came next? Yeah. That's where we go in the next episode. I think we're finally caught up to the story that we started in the first episode. Headdress came out, and that's the year the band really kicked into high gear. You mentioned Ron Schneiderman. I realize we met him during the first episode when he was the label releasing the headdress record. So let's end this episode hearing about how Ron ended up joining Sunburn Hand of the Man. I've been sort of hanging out at the loft a bunch, sort of like in the days um, you know, I'd, I'd put out Headdress the year before and um, just been hanging out. And um, I guess it was early in the year they were having to talk about the, that tour. And um, I mean, I was kind of in this state of mind where I I had decided back then that like, um, you know, I don't need to ever leave New England. I have my an apartment, I had a bicycle. You know, I could have just like, lived that way and not not gotten on a plane or anything ever again. I was sort of feeling very closed like that. that, that and, um, but I had also gone through a lot of stuff and realized that I had to sort of be get counter habitual in my life too. And so I, just before I, I had this, they had this discussion about like going, um, I had just made this pledge to myself that whenever I would say no to things, I would start saying yes. And it was, you know, it was always just such a great vibe that the loft, just a lot of really great folks hanging out and 
good time and you just look around and you see people having a good time and being friends and stuff. And uh, they were talking about this trip and I was like, well, there's no way I'm going to get out of travel to California, drive up the coast and go up to, I mean, way out of my sense of what I'd want to do. But, um, but then when I said that to myself, I said, okay, well, I got to go. Yeah, I mean, and all 5,000 personal stories tied in with that, but yeah. yeah. But I did, so I went, and uh, my feeling, I had a, I had an emotional feeling about, you know, what was going on, being like unique and, you know, a rare, a rare thing. And I was like, and I felt it for them, and I felt for me as part of it. And then I was like, oh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, I brought a viola, uh, landed in San Francisco, went to a music store, I bought a little eight-inch speaker, amp combo thing and a little crate and um, somebody I, somehow I had a small stone or something and it just played. And it was simple as that. Ron decided to go on tour with Sunburn. He flew to California and then he bought an amp to play out of. And he's been an active member ever since. So I think that wraps us up. In our next episode, we hear about four years of Sunburn's almost endless touring. You've been listening to No Way Out, an oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man. If you check out the show notes, we've included a list of links to pictures and other things discussed in this episode. We also have a list of the songs used in the episode with links so you can go hear them in their entirety. I'm Kelly Davis. I hosted and produced this episode. My special guest was Allison Hussey. Editorial support was provided by Chris Sims and Allison Hussey. Portions of this episode were recorded in the studios of WXDU in Durham, North Carolina. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more.